Booty Hoot Productions presents the Sports Deli Podcast, where everyone deserves a seat at the table, where we discuss the intersection between race and sports, mental health, leadership, and equality. To find out more about the Sports Deli Podcast, check us out online at thesportsdelipodcast.com. We are starting to have free giveaways. If you hear giveaway anywhere in the podcast, Send us an email to thesportsdeli at gmail.com with giveaway in the subject heading and in the body of the email, give us the answer to that podcast's specific question. Stephen A. Smith is my alter ego. Go somewhere else with that <laughs> John, she's roasting your ass right from the job. We ain't done the intro yet. <laughs> what the fuck? To me, Colin Kaepernick is is a hero. And Colin Kaepernick is going to go down as a legend. And when George Floyd called out to his mother, he called out to all mothers. And I heard his call. And I- so do you have white privilege? Absolutely. I think there's a, there's a balance between the idea of universal white privilege and it doesn't exist. Now we have to be a voice as white people. African-American women last year changed the course of this of this nation. That, um, women are the backbone, and now we need to support the souls that they stand on. And now whether you're folding laundry, driving, exercising, or cooking, grab your favorite deli sandwich or bagel and your favorite beverage, and let's do this together in the sports deli. Auntie, take us away. <laughs> We're so honored to welcome just three days away from Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, the pride of Syracuse, New York, and Jamesville DeWitt High School, Danny Shays. He played his college ball at Syracuse, where he didn't start until his senior year, but he was first team all Big East, and as a perfect example of the saying in sports, it's not how you start, but how you finish. And because he finished his Syracuse career in such strong fashion, he was selected in the 1981 NBA draft by the then Utah Jazz with the 13th overall pick of the first round. To that point, he went on to play in the NBA for seven different teams over the course of 18 seasons and played in 1,138 games, which is an average of 63 out of 82 games per year. His father, Dolph Shays, I digress, was voted as one of the 50 greatest players of all time and was voted into the Naismith Hall of Fame in 1972 when I was three years old. But as Danny explained in SheridanHoops.com in 2016, that really doesn't explain the true influence that his dad had on him and on the history of basketball. I highly recommend you go to SheridanHoops.com and check out the piece Danny wrote about his father. But a couple of interesting facts about his dad that I wanted to share. First, he started a Final Four game in college at the age of 16. He scored the first basket in NBA All-Star Game history. He played in 706 consecutive games over a nine-year stretch. Load management, my ass. And he once broke his wrist on his shooting hand and became a left-handed shooter. And he was a player coach during his last year in the league and coached Wilt Chamberlain. But more than that, Danny said his dad was an even better person who always put family first. His father was constantly seeking new ways to improve his game and would often shoot his free throws into a 14-inch diameter hoop, which was four inches smaller than a regulation hoop, similar to the one you might find at a carnival. And this tactic helped him lead the NBA in free throw percentage not once, not twice, but three times. But the real question is, did Danny do the same thing as he was a career 80% free throw shooter himself. 
He shares a birthday with Chris Berman and was born the same year as Lawrence Taylor, John McEnroe, Florence Griffith Joyner, Magic Johnson, Simon Cowell, and none other than Weird Al Yankovic. He won a gold medal in the 77 and 81 Maccabiah Games in Israel, which I'm thinking about trying out for the 45 and over team for next year's Maccabiah Games in Israel. And for those of you that don't know, this is the Jewish Olympics, for which I tried out as a youth three times and got cut every time. He then won another gold medal some 33 years later, but this time as a head coach in 2013. He played with Adrian Dantley, Kiki Vandaway, Jay Vincent, Sam's brother, who was on our show, Jack Sigma, Chocolate Thunder, James Worthy, Kurt Rambis, fellow Orangeman Billy Owens, Charles Barkley, and Sam Bowie, who was drafted one slot ahead of Michael Jordan. He's the former executive director of the National Basketball Retired Players Association. He's worked for ESPN and TNT, just to name a few. He wrote the book, Fast Broke, not to be confused with Fast Break, Mike Lupica's book, Learn the Real Reason Athletes Go Broke So You Don't Have To. He's co-hosted a show and still does pregame, as you heard earlier, with uh, the Syracuse Orangemen for the basketball program in New York with Etan Thomas, an influencer and former NBA player who was also on our show. And he currently works for Rico USA. You can find him on LinkedIn. Uh, Danny, truly, like I said, that was a long one, but it was, uh, man, honored to have you in the sports dealer where everyone deserves a seat at the table. Welcome. Mike, I got to admit, that could be the most thorough, <laughs> complete intro in history. And uh, thank you for that. So a couple of, you know, a couple of fast facts. Yeah. Uh, I believe due to politically correctness, we're now just the Syracuse orange. I don't think oh. we're allowed to be orange men anymore. That's a good point. Uh, so I think it's just now orange. Uh, and we, we've been through, since I went there, we've been through at least three mascots. Uh, we started with the saltine warrior, which was a, uh, an Indian warrior. And that got kaputted. Right. Uh, then we went to, they moved him to a Greek warrior because the fraternity council supplied uh, the mascot guy that got put it. Now we have Otto the Orange. The, uh, he's an actual orange, if you know. Uh, but a fear we have a fierce Otto too. So there's a there's a specific version that's fierce Otto. So it's hard to make an orange fierce. Uh, and if, growing up in Syracuse, as you can imagine, there aren't a lot of orange fields, but um, or orange trees. Uh, but anyway, so Otto is the, is the official guy. Uh, and you, you mentioned finishing is better than starting. Uh, I still have the trivia question. Uh, as the longest tenured NBA player ever from Syracuse. Uh, so uh, for all the greats that came through, uh, although I'm about to I was gonna uh, say. be passed by uh, Carmelo Anthony, yes, maybe I one was... of the, the, the great greatest Syracuse yeah. player ever, uh, at least in that conversation with Dave Bing, Derek Coleman, a few yeah. of the others. Uh, so, uh, yes, yeah, so I'm very proud to uh, my boy Melo is going to uh, take the mantle. And uh, so it uh, was a great run. Yeah, we definitely want to talk about Syracuse and, and Coach Beheim and his legacy. I used to work the Syracuse camps back in the 90s. And so, mm -hmm. it, man, I have vivid memories of those. Those those were so much fun and playing games in the evening and, and running the stairs and <laughs> a lot of stairs. <laughs> exactly. So my you know, so again, we'll talk a little history. So you mentioned my dad uh, as a pioneer in the game. Well, one of the things that uh, uh, that he also pioneered, he started the second basketball camp in America. Uh, he and Bob Cousy started camps in 1951. Uh, Cousy is a little bit ahead, so my dad's number two. And as a high schooler and college player, Jim Beheim was a counselor 
at the Dolph Shays All-Star Camp wow. in whatever year that would have been, 60-something. Right. Uh, and so I was a camper, obviously grew up every year. So he owned a summer camp facility, was part owner uh, up in the northeast part of the state near Lake George. And it was a you know, sleep summer, uh, summer sleepaway yeah. camp. And uh, so I spent every summer of my life in the Adirondacks. And then the wow. ninth week, eight weeks, a camp ninth week was basketball only. 200 kids out in the woods playing basketball 12 hours a day. And uh, my wife still cracks up because every time we <laughs> run into somebody who went there, first words out of their mouth is, that was the best time of my life. And she goes, dude, you're 50. I mean, nothing better <laughs> happened since you were a 50. And like, oh, the best time of my life. And uh, so, yeah, that's so, so so that's Jimmy and I go back that far since he was wow. a uh, camp counselor uh, at my dad's camp back in the Adirondacks. Oh, that's amazing. So <clears throat> your grandfather was a truck driver for a laundry company. Is that right? Yeah, came over in the 20s uh, as a yeah. teenager, uh, actually was a boxer in Romania, in Western Romania, wow. but ended up having a a uh, bad accident, got frostbite, and his feet were disabled. Uh, wow. Could still walk, could still walk, but but killed his boxing career. And as as most immigrants of that era, uh, you know, he came across and he uh, you know had to learn English. Uh, right. Did not have an advanced education, so uh, worked labor jobs uh, and uh, you know drove a truck for laundry. Put his three kids through college. Wow. Um, and my dad's an, a, an interesting story because from him I not only learned basketball, uh, but also a love of learning. Um, so my dad did an amazing thing and, and in his era, he actually skipped two grades of high school, grew up in the Bronx, went to DeWitt Clinton high school an elite high school and ended up skipping two grades and left school. He graduated as a, as a, uh, in the middle of his junior year, what would have been his junior year and left the team that was a was going for the city championship, which back then in the forties was it. I mean, right. That was might as well been the national championship. Right. Left school in the middle of the season, went to enrolled in NYU, New York University, and they were a powerhouse, which right. is how he ended up playing in the final four at 16. Mm -hmm. And uh, then got a, a three a, a engineering degree at NYU in three years. So at 19, he was already uh, in the NBA with an four year engineering degree from NYU. Uh, very different path than one and done, uh, which gets you to 19 in today's era. Yeah. Uh, but you know, it, it uh, you know, in his era, tall and skinny, six eight, uh, you know, back in the '40s was a was a big deal. And and again, you know, three brothers in a one bedroom apartment, uh, you wanted to be out doing stuff. So for him, it was basketball. Uh, actually, his younger brother Herman also uh, played college basketball and, and ended up playing for the uh, you know against the Globetrotters for a while, right. and then you know playing some other. Uh, back then, they barnstormed because remember the NBA. Uh, my dad's college career predated the NBA. Uh, the NBA was officially formed in 49. Uh, he came out of school in 48, although they they officially go back to 46 when it was the the uh, there were two leagues back then, the BAA, the Basketball Association of America and the NBL, the National Basketball <laughs> League. And you know, one was the big cities, the New York's, the you know, Philly had the Warriors, uh, Celtics, and then the others, of course, the small cities that was in the other leagues: Syracuse, yeah. Rochester, Oshkosh, Fort Wayne, Indiana. And so when they merged in 49, uh, you know, that's when the NBA was officially named. Like I said, they, they coined their first, uh, uh, you know, they go back to 46 as the founding of that strain of the league. So, so that was an amazing era back then. You talk about, uh, mm -hmm. you know, my dad playing 700 games load with no load management. They didn't have trainers, <laughs> right. let alone, you know, they're playing with Chuck Taylors. No, you know, didn't get right. your ankles taped, didn't get, uh, you know, you rode the train to games. They didn't, it predated air travel. And uh, which is why, 
the league could only go as far west as Minneapolis because it was just too unwieldy yeah. to travel to the West Coast. So it wasn't until the 60s when air travel was was popular enough that they could put two teams out west when, you know, obviously the Lakers moved from Minneapolis and Philadelphia Warriors moved and became San Francisco. Uh, and then my dad's team in Syracuse moved down to Philadelphia and became the 76ers. So that's how, you know, that mm. little shuffle happened. And uh, so, uh, as you mentioned, you made the, the, the NBA's top 50, uh, but a little lesser known fact, they actually had a silver anniversary team, a top 25. And uh, so back in that era, my dad was also on that silver anniversary team. There was only 12. And uh, so this year, amazingly, they're coming up with the wow. top 75. Right. So yeah. Uh, so we're looking forward to seeing how that turns out. Yeah, that'll be interesting. So those last five or six spots is definitely going to be interesting. Well, so many great players in the league today. Uh-huh. And and yeah. I know when the top 50 came out, they, even back then, they still had a hard time with you know institutional memory. How do you compare Dick McGuire or a right. Dolph Shays or a Bob you know, or a Bill Sharman against you know, uh, uh, Jordan and, and those guys. So it's, it's an, it's an amazing exercise, but, uh, uh right. it's, it's, it's going to be interesting. Definitely going to be interesting. Um, <clears throat> so you mentioned that, uh, your dad had a love of learning and it, it reminds me of when, uh, Steve Lavin came on and he talked about his father and, you know, his love of learning, what he taught him and, and, uh, John Wooden and his love mm-hmm. of learning, doing a deep dive at 99 years old into the, the common themes with religions and, you know, and so really that's, what it's about, uh, I think, if you're going to be the best version of yourself, is um, to continue to learn and this continuous process of uh, this ever-changing world, which has been flipped upside down the last year and a half. And so to, to that point, um, you know, we're both Jewish. You know, I, I, I talked about this with Don Kojis, who was on uh, mm-hmm. this week also about, you know, family structures – matter in terms of how we see the world, how we feel empowered, how we're um, taught to uh, go out and just attack the world head on. And and a lot of people haven't had that opportunity. And so talk a little bit about that, because, you know, your couple generations made sacrifices for you. And, you know, we don't want to oversimplify what you just talked about, because it's a it it runs a lot deeper than that. But talk about, you know, a little bit more of your upbringing and and, uh, some of the family things that you have great memories of. Sports Deli is sponsored by SportRx, the leader in sport prescription eyewear. You can find them online at SportRx.com. And don't forget to enter the code DELI10 at checkout for your special 10% discount. And now back to this incredible interview right here on the Sports Deli. When they talk about turning points in life, right? So as I mentioned, my, my grandpa Carl came over from Romania in the 20s, mm-hmm. had to learn English and, and work labor to uh, married. Uh, actually, my grandmother, his wife, um, they grew up two miles apart in Romania, but met in New York City. Oh, my God. Uh, interestingly enough, as teenagers, uh, three boys oh. and uh, again, putting them through college. This is, you know, the uh, during the war years. Right. Um, so a uh, very difficult time. My dad at six, eight was too tall for the war and was a few years too young. The older brother, Freddie, was in the army, but never went, uh, was posted overseas. And um, so when he came out of college, again, as I mentioned, there were the two leagues, the BAA and the NBL. Right. So my dad was drafted both by the Knicks in the territorial rights and by Syracuse in the regular draft. So he actually was able to uh, was ignite a bidding war, uh, as we say <laughs> laughingly. Uh, the Knicks wouldn't go over 5,000 a year and Syracuse went all the way up to 7,500. So for 2,500 bucks, which, they'll, which they all say that was a lot of money in 1948. 
um, I grew up in Syracuse instead of New York. Uh, wow. And uh, so that was, you know, that was a turning point. My dad talks about getting off the bus in Syracuse and, and uh, you know, not knowing a soul up there. And actually the team miscommunicated, didn't even meet him at the bus station. He actually had to walk over to the stadium, uh, you know, again, but this wow. is, you know, uh, NBA in its infancy. Right. Uh, so, <clears throat> so uh, when I grew up, it was, uh, you know, essentially I used to joke, Richie Cunningham could have grow, you know, grew up down the street, uh, you know, from the old happy days character, the Ron Howard yep. show, yep. Uh, just, you know, average middle-class, uh, you know, public school, uh, played in the band, played a couple sports. And uh, as far as, you know, Jewish heritage, uh, you know, I was involved in, in the local synagogue, et cetera, but never really had a, um, true connection to Judaism until the aforementioned Maccabee games. Uh, I, you know, to me, it'd be you know, back then Judaism was really kind of an intellectual thing. You learned about it. You were a Jewish kid. I went to a, uh, in the area I grew up in had a, had a strong Jewish presence. It was, certainly wasn't a, uh, you know, Jewish area, but you know, it was probably 20% uh, Jewish. So it was a you know, strong presence and it was a very, uh, uh, you know, a very equal opportunity, you know, giving, uh, community, you know, we went right. to the communions, the other kids came to the bar mitzvahs. It was, you know, for, uh, my neighbor down the street would invite me down to help decorate the Christmas tree. And, you know, it was just a very, you know, very strong community, you know, none of, you know, nothing could even be considered, you know, competition or, you know, anything like that. Uh, in 77, my senior year of high school, my dad ended up co-being the head coach of the open team for the World Maccabee Games. Uh, this, as you mentioned, uh, it's actually the third largest sporting event in the world, held every four years in Israel the year after the Olympics. Yeah. And it's a full Olympic event, just all Jewish, all Jewish players and athletes. The U.S. actually sends a bigger team to the Maccabee Games than the Olympics, interestingly enough. Mm. So, uh, and the whole idea of the Games is to experience Israel through sports uh, and really get in touch with uh, Jewish heritage. So I went over thinking I was going to an athletic competition and ended up, uh, you know, for, for just over two weeks, being able to embed in Israel, tour the sites, meet families mm. uh, and have an incredible competition. So one, one quick side story uh, back in 77, uh, Israel was led by a, a U.S. player named Tal Brody, the Israeli national team. Mm -hmm. And uh, Israel, of course, was a relatively new country founded in, in, 40, in the 40s. It was only, right. what, 30 years old at that time. And so still new, still deserty, still being built, still have that pioneer spirit. And uh, that summer in 77, Tal Brody led the, the, uh, the Israeli national team to their first ever European championship. There's a great movie made about it called On the Map. Mm -hmm. uh, and Tal Brody, uh, the famous quote after they won, they, you know, he, he was interviewed and he said, Israel is finally on the map in sports and in everything. Hmm. And that was, so that was a huge turning point. This is the spring of 77, huge turning point in Israeli sports history. And in, in many ways, Israeli history uh, itself, the game was so big that the prime minister was resigning in scandal and they couldn't find a TV crew because everybody was covering the game. And so he had to hold <laughs> off his, which is an amazing story. He had to hold off his resignation until the next day because <laughs> there was no one to watch him resign because everyone was watching uh, the Israeli team when they, the oh European Oh my Cup. God. And uh, so the reason I bring that up is that summer was us playing, the U.S. team playing the Maccabi games mm. against most of the remnants of that national team. Tal had retired and mm. there was another player, all C. Perry, their center was an American, so he couldn't play. And we ended up bringing over our team and, and we had a fantastic team at the time. Lots of major college players, Stu Clytenic from South Carolina, Brian mm -hmm. Maggid from uh, University of Maryland, uh, Joel Kramer, who uh, 
uh, UC San Diego, uh, yeah. sorry, San Diego State played with uh, Syracuse or with uh, the Suns. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so we had a terrific team and ended up beating Louis, uh, Willie Sims played at LSU. Uh, we ended up beating them at the buzzer in somewhere between the greatest game and the greatest scandal in Maccabee <laughs> history. It, there wasn't anything untoward, but just because that team came in and we were the upstart Americans who thought we owned basketball and the sellout crowd cheering. I mean, it was one of the most amazing games I've ever played in. Oh. And, uh, uh, but because of that experience, and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of telling a story in a bit. Yeah, story, yeah. But because of that experience, both from you know, experiencing Israel at that time, uh, you know, being embedded, seeing the country up close, uh, meeting the, the, the people and, um, you know, walk, you're walking in the opening ceremonies, playing in that game, you know, it was, it was just such an impactful time and really, um, you, know, Im- you know, embedded in me the, you know, what it means to be Jewish, what it means to, you know, the, what Israel means to the world, et cetera. So, um, you know, those games were just, uh, you know, an incredible turning point. Wow, that's fascinating. Um... He's talked about, you know, being a pioneer and, and uh, you know, uh, the one question I had was, because we've talked about this with other people, <clears throat> it's a little bit different era, but was streetball a thing back when you were playing? Because like, I know in Detroit, like, uh, and, and Jim Herrick talked about this when he came on, mm-hmm. he, he said, we would go into the black neighborhoods and the blacks would come into the white neighborhoods. Sure. No one, no one said a word and we just did it because we wanted to, we wanted a ball. Is that a thing with you that, up there? Absolutely. Sports is sponsored by Moolah Kicks. Moolah is M-O-O-L-A-H, like money, Moolah, and kicks like shoes, one word. You can find them online at moolahkicks.com. And it's the first ever female-only brand basketball shoe. So it's a shout-out to the basketball street culture. And it is also about fighting social injustice and gender inequality worldwide and here in the United States. And again, you can find them at moolahkicks.com. And now back to this incredible interview right here in the Sports Deli. Now wow. I grew up in Syracuse. So it wasn't New York City. Yeah. Uh, but we still we played schoolyard. Uh, yeah. There wasn't AAU. There wasn't right. all that summer stuff. So we played schoolyard. You know, and uh, uh, you know it wasn't unusual for you know you go and and uh, you know some guy's knife falls out of his gym bag or so you know wow. in the earth uh, or whatever. And yeah. Uh, you know, but basketball was uh, you know was Switzerland, right? When as you mentioned, you know, you come in, we're we're just balling, having fun, and. Uh, playing hard, believe me, it was it was you know fight to the death because you didn't want to sit out. That was probably the probably the theme you heard over and over. You didn't want to lose, right? And you had to get you know four games uh, you know back in line. So <laughs> and so it uh, it was people tough were to playing score. hard. Yeah, it was tough to score the game winner, and uh, right. you had to finish in traffic. I mean, because you were getting hacked, right? And if right. you called too many fouls, you were a sissy. You know, it wasn't like well, especially you. Know, you were a big like you're calling a foul. You're a, you're a little punk. Exactly. Exactly. You know, you had, you had to earn it. And, uh, uh, but it was, uh, it was, it was great ball. And, and remember the, also the era in the NBA, uh, the, the ABA NBA merger had recently happened 76. Right. I came in in 81. And so the NBA was full of ABA players who were the street ball version, right? The NBA was historically the, you know, the Midwestern white guys, uh, Indiana, Kentucky, you know, that slow methodical, kind of game and the ABA was the street ball game, right? Run and gun, dunk yeah. contest, uh, flash, uh, you know, that kind of thing. So when they merged, 
most of what you love about the NBA came from the ABA, the high tempo, uh, the three-point line, dunking, um, trash talking, uh, the swagger, all that was ABA. And when I came in, <laughs> all the ABA stars were still playing. George Gervin, right. Dennis, Lardis, Gilmore, Moe's Malone, uh, you know, on and on. So yeah. uh, the four teams with ABA roots, Denver was one where I played, still had ABA roots. You know, you went down to San Antonio uh, and it was ABA fans. You know, it was that raucous, you know, go at it. So it was a, a fantastic time. Uh, and so the street, the whole street ball mentality was all the way up through the NBA. Man, that is amazing. I just, I just can't get enough of those stories, no matter who comes on and talks about, it, especially the the old school players like uh, you and me and and Don and Jim. And you know, when they tell their stories, it's it's uh, amazing how sports and locker rooms are so far ahead of society and what we can learn uh, from sports. You know, if we just sort of t- took a look at it as a framework for you know, how to find some middle ground, we'd be a lot better off for sure. Um, so, you know, uh, I, I talk about this a lot, but, but Jay Billis on the one hand had a really bad high school experience and he's been pretty open about it. And his wife even called him on it and said, you know, you and your teammates were pretty scarred by that experience because obviously, you know, you said that he was probably a good person off the court. He was just in over his head and, you know, just didn't know what he was getting himself into. And as a result, just wasn't a good coach and you know you you overcame it but a lot of people don't overcome it and so what what's the message to coaches because there's coaches that listen to this show and we're Mm -hmm. in a different we're in a different time now it's not shut up and dribble it's not you know getting someone's face in the old days or you know it's it's a different time and so we have to find that delicate balance between you know uh challenging and we have a different mentality we have we have an old school mentality but we have a instant gratification kid now you know, who's swiping left and right and up and down. And so uh, how do we find that delicate balance? What, what, ty- what type of tools can we help these kids put in their toolbox? Sports well, Daily is sponsored by PSK. You can find them online at lids.com, pskcollective.com, tjmax.com, walmart.com, and now Kohl's Department Store at kohls.com. And now back to this incredible interview right here in the sports deli well it's interesting you, you bring that up because i get the question so often how has the game changed uh you know most people recognize easily the uh, impact of a three-point line right well, we know how the games yeah but we know how the game's a, changed no, no i'm it, getting it, that i'm getting that yeah yeah, so, but, yeah but what drove the game to change in so many ways is not just the game uh you know the rules uh but also the mentality so uh when i played in the 80s it was the highest scoring era in nba history Right. Right. And uh, but if you look at the at the rule package back then, right, guards could hand check, which means you could stiff arm def- as a defender. Right. You could put your hand on a guy's hip and push him all over the court back then. It wasn't a foul. Yeah. Uh, bigs could root guys out of the post. Uh, flag- there was no such thing as flagrant fouls. We had two refs. Game was super physical. You talk about the Jordan rules, right? When Jordan drive to the basket, the goal was to see how high he could bounce when you threw him on the ground. And. So we played in, a, in an era that was that physical. And the reason the scores were high is you had to move the ball, move the people, play a passing game style, or else you just get held and pushed. Right. And so what happened was, uh, you know, the dominant teams back then were the, obviously the Lakers and the Celtics. The Lakers were showtime. So all the Western teams had to play high tempo because you had to somehow beat the Lakers to advance in the playoffs. East was the, was the Celtics. So you had to play big physical, move the ball. Uh, so you saw Philadelphia, you saw New York making specific trades to match up against the Celtic players. Right. And then, you know, so, so the game was high tempo because the dominant teams were high tempo. Uh, 
now what's happened is then the, the, the bad boys took over, right? They decided to slow the game down, what we used to call walk the dog and on offense. And so with your games went into the nineties and the eighties. So, uh, and because they won, every team said, well, that's how you win. So now they all, the game got slow. So the NBA had to now change the rules. Uh, you couldn't hold, you couldn't push, you couldn't hand check, couldn't do all those things. And so, you know, so the game changed a lot because of that. And then as the other thing that happened is the development cycle shortened. Uh, when I came in the league, it was rare for a player not to be a four-year college player. Uh, when I, my year, the first three picks were underclassmen and you think the world was going to end. Right. And now, <laughs> right. Uh, you know, it now it, almost nobody goes four years. Right. And so when the development cycle changed and the AAU kind of took over for development, then what happened is players, that whole instant gratification thing started because players were getting recruited younger and younger. They were, were you know, they were looked to be scores younger and younger. They didn't learn the game in that way. They learned the game as an individual, not as a team because they didn't play yeah. year after year on teams. So the nature of the skill set changed. And then of course, as you mentioned, the, you know, the whole instant gratification cycle came in. There were less less, you know, like team roots, right? Team became less important. I got to get mine became more important. Yeah. And so that now you had to coach to that. Uh, you mentioned in your face coaching, uh, you know, in my era, getting MF'd on national TV in front of your mother was a, was nothing. You know, I mean, that was how it worked. Uh, Hubie Brown used to get in fist fights in practice. They'd roll around and dust off and, okay, let's go play. <laughs> nothing, you know? And uh, so, but that was the, again, the nature of the relationship, but you didn't take it personally. Doug Moe, who I, you know, one of the great coaches uh, had anger issues and he used to joke about, it. he says, Hey, 22 hours a day, nicest guy in the world. Do I throw the ball up? He's cussing everybody. You know, he just goes nuts because you just got to put up with me. That's just the way it is. And then he'd buy a beer after and, you know, never hold a grudge. So, so that, you know, that whole kind of mentality relationship. Now, fast forward 20 years, my old teammate, Brian Shaw, uh, he gets the head coaching job with the Nuggets. You know, Brian, you know, longtime player, longtime coach. Yep. Uh, and he's a young guy at the time, right? Probably 40, early 40s. Yep. And uh, I run into him one day and he's just like, you know, he's beaten, depressed. You know, I go, Brian, what's going on? He goes, I don't know how to talk to kids today. He said, I had to buy a, buy a book on millennials, how to talk to millennials so I could understand what they were doing. I mean, I'd yell at a guy in practice and his, the agent would call me in 15 minutes. I'm like, how do you even know I'm yelling at the guy in practice? But, you know, and wow. so it's uh, the whole entitlement thing really shifted as the pot mm. of gold got bigger and bigger. Mm. The whole, you know, the entitlement, I got to get mine got bigger and bigger and it got younger and younger. And so as players came up, they, like I said, didn't have that development. They didn't have the mentoring. They didn't have the wait your turn, you know. And so a lot of those kind of things that were built into our era, um, you know, had just just transform. Not saying whether it's you know, a better or worse. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, you look at what LeBron's done for the league, not only as a player, but as a um, first man in the community, starting schools and having impact and mentoring uh, for a guy who never went to college, right? So uh, Kobe, another one. Uh, you look at the impact he had yeah. uh, as he, but but you you could see his the way he developed was way different. Uh, right. You know, coming in as a brash eighteen year old, uh, and you know, going through that. Uh, you know, the, the public development cycle he went through. And it wasn't until he was, you know, later years, you know, 35 plus that, you know, he, you know, really um, being a girl dad be, became, yeah, became the Kobe that is now the revered, uh, you know, man of the world. And so, uh, you know, so it's interesting how, you know, how that has really played into it. Obviously, from a basketball standpoint, the three point line has taken over uh, the game. And it's, it's, 
there's no more inside out. There's no more throw it in the center. You know, my era, the, the you know, we used to joke the dinosaurs ruled the earth, right? That <laughs> every team had a dominant center ball would go in. Uh, when I came in, there were 10, 20,000 point centers playing at the same right. time. Right. And uh, teams are, they're all center dominant inside out. Yeah. Uh, and now it's the opposite. You know, I don't think there's, I, I don't know if there's three centers in the league, let alone, uh, not on the men's side and the women's side there is, but not on the exactly. Men's side. So, yeah. uh, you know, so that's just, a, you know, that's just a natural evolution of the game. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, when my, when my dad played in his era, it was mostly what he used to call hot potato basketball passing game, uh, high tempo, move the ball, move the people again, because you could grab and foul and hold and do all that. It's amazing. Uh, his, Cause now if yeah. you do that, you're deferring. Well, I mean, you know, if, if you, hard foul the guy coming across the lane they stop the game they view it you get a flagrant you get thrown yeah. out you get fined 50 grand and you're like I, I watch the games now and they're stopping the game for a flagrant foul i'm like flagrant it's just a, <laughs> it's just a foul i mean it's right you know you can hear mark mark jackson and and you know jeff and they're just like come on that's just a common foul like come on yeah. it's i mean the pendulum i mean from that standpoint the pendulum has swung so far um you know and the other way the pendulum has swung um uh, is you know kind of obviously the global nature of the game uh, has changed it. When you talk about from a cultural standpoint, uh, you know what twenty plus percent of the players are international now. Uh, you know so that brings a brand new element. The game is designed yeah. to be marketed overseas. Uh, you look at the China influence on the game. Uh, you know so I think that uh, you know it's hard to look at the game without taking that into account. Uh, you know as you look at uh, where the game is uh, socially today. Uh, you know, with the uh, internet generation, with social media generation, actually, you know, now it's several generations. I think yeah. maybe Chris Bosch was the first one to, you know, back in the day, really take on social media as a thing. Yeah. Uh, but now it's, uh, you know, 24 seven, you know, if it doesn't exist on social media, it never happened, you know? So, you know, the, so the social media influence has played such a impactful part, even down to the, you know, the name image likeness thing you're, you're yeah. seeing come, you know, come through now that's all driven by social media. Yeah. And uh, again, you can debate, you know, good or bad plus or minus, but it's uh, uh, you know, it does have a huge influence on the game. So speaking of uh, name image and likeness, fair to say you had a good high school experience having said all of that uh, you know, a lot of it was because your dad and, you know, you just, no matter what coaches you had, you know, your, your dad was going to probably supersede all of that and the influence that he had on you and your, and your family's influence probably. Sports Deli is sponsored by City Lokes, C-I-T-Y-L-O-C-S. You can find them online at citylokes.com where you can go and make your own personalized license plate hats. They're so cool. You got to check them out. And don't forget to enter the code the Sports Deli at checkout for your special 10% discount. And now back to this incredible interview right here in the sports deli. Well, he did only from a, uh, you know, introductory standpoint. Well, only from a reputation standpoint. He didn't physically get involved except for yelling at the refs, uh, which was a passion (laughs) of his. Um, But I I was fortunate to have good coaches, um, you know, kind of growing up. And I did the, uh, my whole area, uh, not only the coaches from coach from my high school, uh, JV and varsity, uh, but also the coaches we played against. Actually, most of them were counselors wow. at my dad's camp uh, because back then the coaching level at, at my at basketball camps was way higher than it is today because of NCAA rules. Uh, so every coach yeah. at the camp was a high school varsity or a, or a college mm-hmm. assistant. Now you can't do that because it's a right. recruiting violation. Uh, but I was fortunate um, 
wow. to have very good coaching uh, growing up through uh, so my dad's basketball camp and through my high school. So cross, cross fingers, knock on wood, whatever you want. Uh, that I did have a very good experience. Did you have uh, players of color on your team in your high school team? No. Uh, no, we had two black kids in my high school. Wow, uh, they were identical twins named Pierce and Pierre, and played the saxophone. Um, you still talk to them? Uh, actually, I, I'm I on Facebook with one of them. No, we don't, wow. we don't talk much, but we do. Connect. Yeah, and um, uh, but again, but what was ironic is that it wasn't an issue. You know, I mean, I, I don't really know really how to explain it, but I never had a negative experience growing up with yeah. anyone of color. So I never had an issue. I never had a, yeah. wasn't even a conversation, you know, I mean, there wasn't any. Well, that language of basketball, a lot of times will, no. will put you in that bubble. And so for me, when I, you know, it was probably, you know, high, kind of high school age playing against other schools and playing in, in camps and, uh, you know, going to five-star, which was one of the few places outside of, uh, yeah. outside of time to go for you know, five-star basketball camp. Uh, that I, you know, really spent, you know, a lot of time in the black community and then obviously college and, and pro. Uh, but again, it was, to me, it was never in my consciousness one way or the other. So it was never a thing even to look at. I, I see it, you know, in my experience back then, uh, you know, from a racial relationship as being night and day what I see today, uh, where, uh, you know, again, maybe I was the naive one. But uh, I never saw race as even a thing to talk about outside of just the obvious, you know. And I played uh, like we used to joke around uh, when I was in Denver. We had a couple of Southern players, T.R. Dunn from Alabama, Alex English from South Carolina. And when we right. go on the road, uh, you know, uh, like we played a, a, a preseason game in Columbia for Alex English Day. And mom had us over for a Southern dinner, uh, you know, oh. so chit chitlins and barbecue and that. And wow. it was and it was just hoot and holler and wow, this is really cool. Thanks for the <laughs> experience. You know, it wasn't a, uh, and it, it was nothing but family friendly, you know, like that. So, uh, and we used to, you know, again, uh, T.R. Dunn, great friend, uh, Alabama. I went to University of Alabama and, uh, you know, we used to, you know, make all this, you know, we used to just joke back and forth, nothing, uh, yeah. you know, the, and you mentioned earlier about the about lot of sports locker rooms, right? Probably the most un-PC places on the on the planet <laughs> right and uh anything was open game you know and that's why the code is it stays in the locker room right because it's supposed uh, to there there's an understanding of you know what's allowed in a sports locker room you know wouldn't exist in the street with media right. with you know that kind of take out take everything out of context mentality and uh but you know every possible insult rag on everybody right um you know if if you show up and your pants are an inch too short you're going to hear about it if you you know say something stupid you're going to hear about it if uh, you know, your road girl is ugly man are you going to hear about it you know so <laughs> so it's uh it uh, you know it was uh supernatural uh how on pc uh locker rooms are and uh again but nothing is ever taken you know it's just you know, it's just trash talk, right. Or fun or, yeah. or whatever. There's a, there's the understanding of it that it's not like, I'm not really insulting you. We're, you know, we're hooting and hollering, right. And I'm making fun of you or this or you're that, or you're, you know, and vice versa. And, you know, it's practical jokes or whatever you want, however you want to do it. You know, so it's just, uh, just it, is, it is what it is. Yeah. I still do radio for Syracuse yeah. and pregame shows, that kind of things. So, and I, yeah. I did a daily talk show before COVID. So I have my, you know, my, my, like you got my set with all my you know, trophies, memorabilia in the background. Yeah, so. that's awesome. Here it's a little noisy. Can't hear no one problem. thing, oh. no ambient sound at all. 
in that case, perfect. So my communication advisor would be very proud of me that I used the word ambient during this interview since I, I am like a communication it. major. And you'd be impressed with that also since Syracuse is renowned. Absolutely. For their, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Short story is I went to Syracuse as a chemistry major. Uh, and it turned out that a new house grad, right? The school, of, you know, fresh out of college, bought this little 5,000 watt FM. And uh, he had a Sunday night guest DJ, you know, where you'd write in and, and do guest DJ spots. So he, big fan. So he came to me one day at practice and you know, he's 24 years old. He says, hey, you want to be, uh, you know, being another player, do the guest DJ spot one night. So Sunday night was rolled out to this just, you know, piss out little nothing booth in the middle of nowhere in manliest New York. And, <laughs> and uh, we used to joke, you know, you had to sit in the parking lot to get the station. And uh, I loved it. He, the other guy hated it. So he gave me a show. So Shay's Lounge was born. And uh, so I did a show for him for, you know, for my last year there. And then I ended up getting a rock show in Denver. I was a rock DJ in Denver when I was there for two years and did tons of radio. Now that same little pissant guy is the 600 pound gorilla in New York. He owns the station that is the Syracuse flagship. Yeah, he does Yankees outside of New York. And so when we went in the ACC, he called me back up and, uh, said, hey, I need some horsepower. You've got a show. So come on, do all my pregame. And uh, then we'll, we'll look about doing some more. So, you know, so that's that, that's how I got my start a little, as a rock DJ in the uh, uh, good old Manlius, 1978. Man, that is fascinating. Oh, so, I love it. That's so cool. Well, what do you think of when you see Doc Rivers crying at the podium or LeBron saying that, you know, he's still fearful for his kids you know, in a time where, unfortunately, uh, the death of somebody, in this case, uh, George Floyd, sheds a light, uh, you know, when the conversations should just happen naturally if somebody's concerned, instead of being dismissive or marginalizing, you know, a culture or, you know, people, people's experiences, even if they have different ones uh, in terms of uh, the same culture, because people will say, well, LeBron, whatever, like you're a million, you know, and, and so there's been more white allies from what I've noticed uh, than ever before. And so maybe back then when we were growing up, it was more, you know, we just didn't talk about it. It was just, you know, like you said, locker room and whatever, and no one, no one thought anything of it, but, but what, what are your thoughts in terms of, do you sense a shift going on? Are there, do you think there's going to be more policy changes or is it going to get swept under the carpet? You know, do you think sports has done a good job? Like, what are your thoughts on all of what's happened last year and a half? Well, you know, it's, it's, this is really an interesting kind of place to, to wade into. And it's also a very difficult place to have an honest conversation about, frankly. And uh, because, again, everything is so overly, I wouldn't say overly, everything is so sensitized right now. Uh, like, for instance, uh, I, I, you know, the, I think the last statistic I heard is that there were some small number, 10 or 12 or 14 deaths in custody of unarmed African-Americans in police custody. Yet that is the issue when there's thousands of, you know, uh, know gang-related deaths in the African community or in the African-American community and on and on and on. So you, if you look at, you know, the scope of the problem or the, you know, the, you know, the issue itself, it seems that there's a huge uh, amount of capital spent on this issue compared to, you know, drug overdoses, which which kill a thousand times as many, or black on black crime, or gang related issues, which kill a thousand times as many. 
So what that means to me is this represents something bigger than the issue. Like this, I see that as a trigger of, uh, of what else is going on, of that deep-seated angst, uh, deep-seated pain in the Black community. And this is kind of what triggered it to come out. Um, and it almost seems like there's like different perceptions of conversations. So for instance, LeBron said something that I thought was very courageous. He did an interview and I'm gonna paraphrase. Uh, I think it was the barbershop um, was the name of the show. And he talked about when he was growing up, all he heard was that whites were oppressors and evil and et cetera, et cetera. That's all he heard his entire life. Never met a white person until he went to high school and he was recruited to an elite high school. And only then did he actually meet an actual white person uh, where he got to see that that wasn't true. And, but it begs the question, how much of that, however you want to say it, you know, program or message or, or uh, you know, recurring theme, that system, that, you know, that reinforced system is being programmed into inner city communities that now um, you know, are, are, are being exposed, right? Another, another thing that came out that I found very interesting, uh, and it kind of came and went pretty quickly, but the African-American History Museum put yeah. out a thing on white traits. I don't know if you saw yeah. this. And, and if you look at it, most of what they defined as white traits were success principles, right? It was def deferring gratification, stress education, family unit, right. um, you know, saving money, the, uh, you know, working your way up the corporate ladder. You know, a lot of these things that, and I'm, I'm reading this and I'm kind of perplexed at how did these become white traits? Like what's white about them? You know, they talk about the European culture kind of brought it over and, and I'm like, okay, but. Instead of, to, instead of what? They're just things that would deem they're, they're just successful. Things you do to become successful. Right. right? But, the, but here's the part that, that triggered me on it is one of the things that I've heard over and over. Uh, and again, this is just me as an observer. Uh, but when, uh, you know, somebody from the city becomes successful and they move out to the suburbs, they're, you know, they're tagged as going white. And that's a bad thing. You saw it with Tiger Woods. You saw it with Michael Jordan. You saw it with those, you know, that they're, they're going white. Like that's an evil thing to have happen. And so if you start connecting the messaging, right? Um, so if, when, I, when I put these things together, one of the things that, that just kind of occurred to me is if, if these are established to be white people things and going white is a bad thing, then what's left, right? I mean, this is just being successful. This is getting an education, climbing, you know, climbing the socioeconomic ladder. The European, like when I talked about my, my family's path, that the, the normal path back for the immigrant, the immigrant community was a two generation path. You know, the first generation would come in, they'd work, you know, an unskilled labor, they'd learn something, put their kids through college and generation, you know, three were the, you know, my generation were the kids who grew up with the expectation you go to college, that you get an education and blah, blah, blah. So that was the path. And, you know, and I just find it so, you know, so intriguing that, uh, you know, the way this, uh, you know, the, the angst has been triggered uh, you know, by the, the George Floyd incident that has brought so much to the surface uh, hmm. that obviously is there. I mean, I, I'm, I'm in no way, you know, diminishing or making it not real. I mean, it's, it's real. And uh, so the question is, how do we make this a communication uh, without having it lead to, you know, uh, you know, real division? I mean, like I said, I see way more division now than when I was playing back 30 years ago. Like I said, it was, it was, uh, you know, where basketball was, was the agnostic thing, right? It was the meritocracy. You could play or you couldn't. 
and it had nothing to do with with with, the, with a race element or uh, and then, like I said, I'm sure I'm oversimplifying, and I'm sure that you know there were. Uh, no, I think issues, I, I, I but think I don't see it anything compared to what's at what where we are today. Oh well, that was probably an answer that we haven't heard before on the show. That's far from an oversimplification. I think that speaks to the multi layers that uh, is involved in this issue, and that there are family structure issues. You know, we're probably not ones to speak uh, on black on black issues. You know, Rashawn McLeod came on the show, and he talked about the fact that there are those issues. You know, but, you know, we're specifically talking about the systemic things. And one of the things I heard on Clubhouse this morning that I found very interesting is a very successful person who was in jail for three years, a person of color, said not only do we not see people like us in successful situations growing up oftentimes, but we don't even start to think in a way that allows us to understand that we could be successful. So we stop ourselves. It's like there's a, a, an instant sabotage which I didn't really think of, you know, when someone says, oh, you could do this or you could do that. And you're like, you know, and then all of a sudden they're like, they, they instantly shoot it down. And so that thought process doesn't even evolve. And they, they just continue down that other path, whatever, wherever that leads oftentimes. And like you said, it's layered. There's a lot of in, internal issues and, and there, and there obviously are policy issues that, that need to be changed. And there's disproportionate things that are going on. But I, I mean, from my perspective, I don't know how you feel, but I feel like the NBA uh, and all the major sports collabed in a way that I hadn't seen before, where people aren't either ostracized or they're, you know, and you can go back, like you mentioned, uh, you know, Dave Bing and, and Arthur Ashes and the Kareems. And there's been a lot of people, Colin, most recently, Bruce mm -hmm. Maxwell, Bruce Maxwell was on the show, Major League Baseball player, same thing happened to him, first black baseball player to kneel. And so, you know, now you're, you're encouraged to speak out, whether it was the NCAA issue with the women or whatever it is that's going on, because if you don't, you know, people will have your back now. You're not going to have sponsorships taken away. So there's been a shift from that perspective where people are going to have your back and, and the owners and, and coaches and, you know, people in leadership positions, still white men uh, who run all these big conglomerates, you know, there's a lot of pressure on them. There is, and uh, there's, and the flip side of that is, uh, you know, I, uh, you know, I'll, I'll be probably more candid than I should here, but I think the NBA was exposed in Hong Kong, for instance, uh, that you know they talk about social justice, but you know there's the right. perception that until the bread is not buttered anymore, and then it's not an issue. Um, so, you know, so I think I think there's a there's a thing there uh, that the NBA has never addressed or you know figured out. Uh, I think that, um, you know, social, you know, even in, in my era, uh, you know, the great social justice leaders, the Kareem Jabars, Jim Brown, Muhammad Ali, uh, they had to be big enough stars where they could, right. uh, you know, be beyond retribution. Obviously, even Muhammad Ali wasn't big enough, but he, again, he didn't have anything behind him because he was a solo athlete, uh, unlike a, a Kareem or a Jim Brown. But those guys had a level of courage to go out at a time uh, where, uh, you know, where it wasn't celebrated. And, uh, you know, even it trickles down to simple things like running the NBA union. When it came time for collective bargaining, the union wanted a, a president who was beyond retribution. So when Patrick Ewing was the president, you know, they need a star big enough to not be pressured. Um, and, uh, you know, so so there was that element in, of the, you know, the great civil rights leaders. Uh, but it, it was always a, you know, kind of a step forward. And the league itself always had the position of, you know, being, you know, in some ways, uh, I don't know if agnostic is the right way to put it, or just at kind of a, uh, 
actually I'll, I'll phrase it a different way in today's world where social justice is everywhere and everything um and again not a you know just an observation right uh you know sports was always thought of as a place where that didn't apply where you could play or you couldn't it was meritocracy it was uh you know certainly an, uh, an opportunity if you if you talk about the african-american community uh it was something that uh you know had a hundred percent access if you could play right there was never an issue of of uh you know that level of of discrimination so it's you know now that the league itself has become so public about it there's also the perception of look is there any place i can go to watch a basketball game right i, I want to enjoy the sports i want to cheer my team on you know i want to you know i want to have that be a you know not uh, you know like an island of i can go have fun doing this so there's you know it's it's you know it's finding its level right it's and there's uh, you know, the pendulum is swinging, obviously, but there's there's really a case of, uh, you know, it needing to find its level. Well, we could talk about that for a long time. Wow, that's fascinating stuff. I appreciate your thoughtfulness when it comes to, to talking about that. Um, you know, because we understand it, right? Uh, being descendants of, of uh, the Second World War and the Holocaust. And, you know, you probably learned more about that even when you went to Israel. And, and you sure. know, we, so we have a different level of sensitivity you know, uh, I know more about my history, you know, over the, the last uh, year, my grandma's my 92 year old grandmother spent six months here and talked about her family and the history of her family. It's just, it's yeah. just, uh, yeah. So we understand things a little bit differently. I think. And, and Mike, let me jump this in because before we wrap here, I want, I did want to kind of mention this, cause this is kind of another thing from a personal level that I find ineffective and annoying this concept of there's like a white community or a black community, like it's uniform. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, uh, you know, when you talk about the years of the European immigration, uh, there's not like there's one type of European, like Europeans got along. Right. The, right. the, uh, the Italians were at war, the French and the English, the Irish were discriminated against the, you know, it, it, you know, then there's the Eastern Bloc. So it's not like there's this any kind of standard, you know, of, you know, white culture, European culture, uh, and the same thing in the African-American community. Right. It's not like there's a, uh, you know, a standard type black experience. And so what I see right. being talked about is confusing culture with color. And, and that's the part that I think makes a lot of the conversation, uh, you know, it's sometimes you know, difficult or ineffective because there's, there's, you know, I see what's talked about as racial issue, issues as much as cultural and economic issues, right? You talk about that poor mentality that you brought up a few, a few minutes ago. Uh, mm -hmm. That's a way different thing than just the African-American experience. And, you know, raising people from poverty, you know, in the generation we talked about the you know, post first and second war, uh, people had to be raised from poverty. They lived in ethnic ghettos when they came across there was, a, mm -hmm. there was an Italian neighborhood, a Polish neighborhood, a, right. you know, Irish neighborhood, and they had to work their way out of those ghetto situations to, uh, you know, to advance. And so I see that as, you know, maybe a, uh, a more effective conversation than just making it the, the people of color versus the people of not color. Like those yeah. are, those are uniform things. Yeah. Can I ask you a few of the rapid fire questions before we wrap sure. things up? Okay, good, man. Great talk. Uh, maybe next time we'll, we'll talk about uh, coach and, you know, coach K obviously is retiring and coach Beheim. I don't know how much time he's got left, but obviously he's, he's had an amazing run. And 
you know, I know this pandemic took took its toll on a lot of the coaches probably. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Today's giveaway is compliments of PSK. Be inspired in PSK. That is Phaedra Knight's line of clothing that promotes inclusivity, empowerment, and equality by supporting female athletes through the Women's Sports Foundation. She's in the Rugby Hall of Fame. And so it's uh, an olive green, large, long sleeve uh, PSK t-shirt, cotton. And it has uh, PSK on the sleeves and the logo on the back. So it is totally sweet. So today's question is, who is the one person that Danny Shays would have at his dinner table if he could choose anyone, and what is his reason? Remember, send me an email with the answer, and in the subject heading, put giveaway, and in the body, state the answer and uh, the reason why he chose that person, and the first person... Uh, who gets the answer correct, I will mail this out within 48 hours uh, to an address that uh, you list in your email. And now back to this amazing interview right here in the Sports Deli. All right, uh, KJ, Kevin Johnson, or Mr. Big Shot, Chauncey Billups? I'm a big KJ fan. Uh, I not only as a player, play got to play with, and I love Chauncey too, Denver guy. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, KJ's my guy. He's, uh, you know, was a yeah, you know, big time in big situations. You know, great yep. in the community, incredible human being. Should uh, be in the Hall of Fame, in my opinion. Package. Absolutely. Yeah. And and I teach his move. And for the record, as a pro skills trainer, not one person in the NBA uses his KJ plyo push. And I've been teaching it for thirty years. And anyone that masters it literally goes by people, and they cannot figure out how the move works. I've taught it to WNBA players, and it's 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 a it's an amazing freaking move. I would love to have him on. So if that if that is ever possible. I just want to give him props for 30 years. I've been teaching his move and calling it the KJ. Uh, best nickname, Chocolate Thunder or the Greek Freak? Ooh, that's I, I love Chocolate Thunder. I, <laughs> I uh, uh, you know, Daryl was was had such an impact back in his day, totally. and I got to play with him a little bit in Denver yep. at the end of his career. Yep. Uh, super funny guy, and uh, that's awesome. Uh, so yeah, I, I'm going with Chocolate Thunder. <laughs> old, old, uh, sticking with my old school boys. Favorite food that makes you dance? Ooh. Um, as you know, I can really shake it. Um, <laughs> so, uh, that's a great question. Uh, favorite food that makes me dance. I'm probably going to go with, uh, some, uh, some good Thai food. Get that spice. Going. Oh, wow. I was, I was thinking maybe latkes, but we went with the Thai food. Okay. That's yeah, cool. Go, okay. On Thai, go on Thai food. Yeah. Well, we grew up on bagels and cream cheese. It's not a lot, not <laughs> a lot of true. spice there. That's right. Exactly. That's a little bit, a little bit bland. Uh, Kobe or Larry? Uh, boy, again, a tough one. I'm, uh, you know, I thought, you know, Bird was the complete everything player. I'm, uh, uh, you know, fun to play with, fun to play against. Uh, Mr. Clutch, uh, do it all. I'm going with Bird. I love it. I heard him on Dan Patrick uh, yesterday. He was freaking hilarious. Uh, yeah. uh, so inside the NBA, Chuck, Kenny, Shaq, or Ernie? You know what? I always loved Ernie's kind of every man shtick of being there and then dropping that little, you know, that offbeat sense of humor thing. I, Ernie, Ernie, I don't think gets nearly enough credit for just I agree. The, the vast intelligence he brings to that to make that machine turn. Uh, I'm a big Ernie fan. Biggest rival when you played at Syracuse? 
Oh, Georgetown. Yeah, for sure. Wasn't a, there wasn't a second. Uh, LeBron, Georgetown, Syracuse made the Big East. Yeah, for sure. LeBron then, or MJ? MJ. All in the family or Sanford and Son? Actually, you know what? I'm, I'm going to back up. I'm going to make that one a tie. Oh. I'm going to bail on that one because I, I think MJ changed the game in a way that um, – you know, pioneered so many things about the game beyond just being an incredible player. Um, you know, I thought I, I looked at when you talk about the unstoppable force against the immovable object, right? Yeah. MJ was the was the unstoppable force. I mean, he was, you know, almost unbeatable uh, in his way, uh, you know, with his will to win. Yeah. And LeBron is obviously just such a, you know, amazing everything. Yeah, uh, great in the community. You know, I mean, those are two guys that I don't know that you can pick one over the other at the end of the day. I mean, I went with MJ because of, again, my era, well, I you know got to play against him year after year and, you know, saw that up close. But I'm a huge LeBron fan as far as what he, you know, has brought. And, I've, and one thing about LeBron, I, I get it's remarkable to me how far people go to criticize the guy Amazing. when he is head and shoulders above for so long you know so so i'm gonna i'm gonna uh, i'm gonna make that one a tie and he's improved his game every year every year every and, year. Uh, and what he does off the court for his oh. longevity and not and oh. in the community and you know and jordan jordan did in the community it was it was quieter than LeBron, it was quieter but, yeah but again and jordan had the benefit of not having social media in his era absolutely so uh so whatever warts were there we didn't get to see but um so you know it's uh, I'm, I'm going with uh a tie. They're, they're both on Mount Washington. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. All in the family are Sanford and Son. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know what? That is another a great one. I, I used to love Archie Bunker. Oh, and, man. Uh, um, you know, their famous Sammy Davis Jr. show. Oh, uh, my God. Where Sammy left his briefcase in the cab yep. and uh, came over. <laughs> Uh, I thought I thought Archie was, I mean, as fun as, as hysterical as, as uh, Red Fox was um uh archie was was a game changer i mean he was he was a, O'Connor, he yeah. changed society that, totally. yeah, I think that show oh we'll put that in the column of they couldn't make that show today <laughs> right absolutely yeah, you couldn't, couldn't make that yeah you know, i just saw a thing where the the producer of friends said they couldn't make friends today uh, don, don said the same thing this week couldn't couldn't make it today yeah, i mean the guy was an executive producer so he couldn't make it couldn't make it today because you would need a more diverse cast and you couldn't talk about any of the stuff half the stuff they talked about Oh, unbelievable. Uh, Jack or Tiger? Um, I would say Tiger in his prime. Willie or Hank? Willie Mays or Hank Aaron? Uh, I think Willie was a more exciting to watch complete player. Yeah. So I'm going with Willie Mays. Should Pete Rose be in the Hall of Fame? Wow. Yes. With an asterisk, but yeah. Um, I, I think there's, you know, him not being in the Hall of Fame, a guy like a, you know, uh, you know some of those uh you know those behavior issues and again i, I don't want to oversimplify that pete was a behavior guy because obviously betting on baseball was a thing but yeah uh but i think that you know it's it becomes too arbitrary when you start down that path and even though pete was an extreme example uh when you're talking you know like some of the other guys who are you know not being considered because of you know then you go to the barry bonds you go to uh kurt schilling you go to you know some of these other guys who statistically without a doubt but <laughs> You yeah. know, were they, you know, where, where does the moral, where does the moral, and then you look at, it's not like the hall of fame is full of moral guys. Right. So, so if that's a, if that's a thing, then it's a, it's a slippery slope. 
Dick Vitale, Bill Walton, or Steve Lavin as an announcer? <laughs> uh, I'm going to go Bill Walton. Uh, Dick Vitale is nails on the chalkboard for me. Um, he says that seems to say the same thing over and over. Um, and uh, Bill, half uh, I only know what he's talking about about half the time, <laughs> but I love Bill Walton. He's an awesome, yeah. awesome dude. Brent Musburger or Vern Lundquist? Brent. Wow, interesting. Now, you played for three coaches that had arguably the best haircuts in the history of basketball. So who do you choose? Del Harris, Randy Fund, or Pat Riley's hair? I think you got to go with Pat. He was famous yeah. for that. And uh, uh, but, but, but style, I'm picking Chuck Daly. Chuck, that's right. Chuck, Man, Chuck he was, was the most stylish. With his suits. Well, you know, he, he had a thing for watches. And oh, he purposefully... Oh, you know, he was famous for his wristwatches and he purposely wow. had his suits tailored with his less left sleeve shorter than the right one. So you could see wow. the watch. Yeah. Fascinating. Okay. I, two more questions real quick. Okay. If you had five people past or present to have at your dinner table, anyone uh, sports or not sports who would be at your table? Hmm. I got, I got to put some thought on that one. That's a, that's a big one. Um, Belichick or Saban? Uh, Saban. Belichick's and, too uh, too baggagey for me. I think yeah. I, I like I, I like what Nick brings to the table. Yeah. Um, uh, Belichick to me is too much a little dictator. Uh, yeah. Can't argue with success, right? You are what you know. Yeah. You are what your wins say you are. For sure. Uh, but if, between those two, I'll take Saban. And where do you see yourself in five years? Um, you know, I think that I have. Uh, the ability to really, you know, bring an influence to the world about, you know, being we're old school is cool. You know, I think that <laughs> I love that there's a, there's a stability that is missing. There's a, uh, you know, a historical perspective that's missing. There's a, and sports, uh, or are you talking about globally? Both, okay. you know, both. And uh, so I think, you know, that's where my focus is right now is, is, you know, really, cause I was a, I was a fundamentals guy. Right. And to me, the fundamentals of the game and of life are not all that, you know, negotiable or all that, um, you know, variable over time. Certainly, you know, certainly the, you know, the styles and the pizzazz and the, and the cultural parts, you know, evolve. But how do you go but, about being an influencer in the way that you're talking about? Uh, well, I'm getting more involved in, you know, community issues, Okay. uh, starting within my own, uh, community and, you know, looking to develop, I've done a lot of speaking and a lot of, sure. uh, other things that I'm you know, looking to get more, you know, more into. And I just, I'm, I'm right now kind of refining what that message is going to look like. Sure. And, uh, we'll, we'll see how it goes. Oh, that's amazing. Okay. Give us a tease for the next time you come on the show. Who's at least one of those people at the table. Uh, I would say Abraham Lincoln. Wow. Because person he, that chose him. Okay. He, and, and the reason is, is because he lived at a time where the choices he had to make were excruciating in so many ways. Mm. And he stood up and made them and was responsible for them. And, you know, changed the world in a way that uh, is tsunami. Is that a word? Um, it is now. And, and so, you know, if I, you know, for me, that's kind of a key, somebody who, who lived at a time and had to, you know, exist and make decisions in a way that are just, you know, almost like beyond imagining. And sure. how do you, 
you know, how do you live in a world that's so far outside of reasonable uh, and, you know, not only um, live, but excel in that environment? Well, you're certainly following in his footsteps in a way, you know, your old school is cool, like you said, but you're also a forward thinker uh, and you're thoughtful uh, when it comes to um, trying to understand and, and seek a greater understanding of not only yourself, but the world around you. And I wish you nothing but the best. Well, hopefully we can get you back on and talk shop Absolutely. a little bit more about uh, Bayheim and some other things. Happy New Year. Sean Bye, Tova. Talk to you soon and uh, tell your wife thanks for letting you go over a little bit. And much love and respect. We'll talk to you soon, Danny. I appreciate right, it very much. It. Thanks, Mike. Right, take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Wow, that was a fascinating conversation with Danny Shays, uh, former Syracuse Orangeman and uh, NBA player uh, over an 18-year period. And... Um, just uh, loved the conversation. So hope you enjoyed it. Uh, we'll definitely get him back on again to uh, talk a little bit more about his college experience and some other things in the NBA. But I thought uh, uh, living in the current times that we are, um, to have someone so open and honest uh, about uh, the topics of race and sports and um, social injustice and systemic racism, and to, to be a white ally uh, that he clearly is uh, and that he wants to get his message out uh, to the masses globally, as you heard, uh, as well as locally, uh, is to be commended. Uh, so you can always send us an email to thesportsdeli at gmail.com. Check us out at thesportsdelipodcast.com. You can always DM me on Instagram at Mike Hootner and on Twitter at Michael Hootner. This episode of the Sports Deli Podcast, where everyone deserves a seat at the table, was brought to you by Hootie Hoot Productions. For Dr. J and Coach K, I'm Hootie Hoot. Please mask up. Black Lives Matter. Stop the Asian hate. And remember, it takes a village. And until next time, much love. Peace.